This is Tending Seeds, and I'm your host, Sarah, talking to you about homesteading, gardening, and herbalism. Hey, friends. So happy to be back here with you today with another episode. This is actually going to be our first interview episode for 2022, and we have lots more lined up after this one, but I'm really excited to kick off the season of interviews with this talk today. I have with us today Stephanie Rose. She is an award-winning author, freelance writer, instructor, and international speaker who aims to encourage better living through plants. As a longtime student and teacher of organic gardening, permaculture design, herbalism, and natural skincare formulation, she enjoys inspiring others to learn how to grow and use plants with a focus on regenerative practices that are green, healthy, and natural. She is a member of Garden Communicators International, the Permaculture Institute of North America, the International Herb Association, and volunteers to develop children's gardens as a Vancouver master gardener. She is the author of 11 books. Her 11th book is the one we're mostly going to be talking about today. It is called The Regenerative Garden, 80 Practical Projects for Creating a Self-Sustaining Garden Ecosystem. It's a beautiful book, like starting right at the cover and on through the rest of it. I was really impressed. Lots of projects that I'm looking forward to trying to incorporate here into our homestead as well. I think there's something here for everyone, whether you're new to gardening or even if you've been doing this for a long time, but you're just looking for some new ideas, maybe a new project or two to tackle um, this spring. I think there's a lot here. I think everyone can get something out of it. And I'm really excited to share this talk that I had with Stephanie. She is a great guest, and I think her story is a really wonderful one that a lot of us can find something to relate to. So without further ado, we're just going to jump right in. And here is Stephanie. Stephanie, thank you so much for being on the show. I'd love to get started by talking about where did your love for gardening come from and how long have you been gardening now? Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. I love chatting with homesteaders. Um, As a gardener, I started in the city. So I grew up in the city. I didn't have any sort of like experience with nature. I didn't, you know, have that access to sort of farmland or any of that real connection to nature. And, uh, you know, I did the typical thing. I went to school, uh, I started climbing up the corporate ladder. And then one day overnight, I got really sick and I couldn't get out of bed for almost two years. Wow! So it came on really suddenly. I was severely disabled and it took me another uh, eight years in order to get to a place where I was able to really function again. But through that whole process, you know, I was stuck at home. Um, when I started to wake up after that first couple of years, I found that I couldn't do much. So I just went outside my front door and I looked at this little, you know, this little house that I had on a standard size lot in urban Vancouver, BC, Canada. And I said, you know what, this is where I'm going to heal. And so I got all these books from the library. So like you, I was brand new to it and learning along the way. I got all these books from the library. I would go outside and practice what I was learning and just experiment and trial. I started with just five minutes a day, started working up to, or sorry, five minutes a week. That's all I could put in. It was it, like, I just didn't have that much energy and that much strength. 
but I worked up to five minutes a day, then 10 minutes a day, and then hours. And then I just basically lived outside for most of the gardening season. So as my garden transformed and bloomed and I learned about plants, I healed. And uh, that's how I found gardening. And that's how I found sort of my love for garden therapy, which is uh, the name of my website that I've been sort of logging the journey along the way. Wow. That is a beautiful story. I'm so glad that you were able to discover gardening and, and have that be an outlet and part of your healing process. That's really beautiful. And, you know, I think a lot of our listeners also like you started off in the city, uh, maybe are still in the city and trying to incorporate more gardening and homesteading into their lives, um, in the hopes of, you know, maybe leaving the city someday or staying urban. There's lots of urban homesteading happening nowadays as well. So I think there's a lot here for anyone, regardless of, of where they are. Um, in your book. So this is actually your 11th book and you've already covered just some really amazing topics previously from natural beauty recipes to garden fertilizers and composts, uh, your book, garden alchemy, I really loved as well. So for this book, the regenerative garden, what inspired you to write this one in particular? What do you hope people will get from reading it and completing some of these projects? Yeah, so, you know, um, that was a long time ago when I got sick. It was uh, back in 2006. So I recovered. I started garden therapy. I started writing about gardening. And what I learned was I started showing pictures of my garden and, and made connections with other people that were also doing the same thing. And they said, how do you do these projects? So I started writing out the instructions and I found I had this real um, passion and knack for writing out easy step-by-step instructions for people to be able to replicate what I was doing. So for me, because I was disabled and because I still live with disability now, the projects have to be really easy to accomplish and very um, high like reward. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I kind of, um, you know, through that time, I became an organic master gardener. I started working with children's gardens and teaching our littlest gardeners. I studied natural skincare formulation. As you said, I started writing all these books. Um, and instead of going back to the corporate world, I decided to work as an author. And, you know, this has been uh, a real blessing for me because, of course, I get this opportunity to now work with the thing that I love and that keeps me healthy um, while sharing it with others. As I was going through this whole process, I found permaculture and permaculture resonated with me because it seemed like the way we were gardening or the way we were being taught to garden was a lot of work, clearing out the land, putting in a bunch of seeds, letting them grow, keeping space in between them for, you know, weeds and wild plants to move in and continuously weeding that creating monocrops so that we've got one kind of uh, one, we put all of our eggs into one basket where, you know, it invites pests and disease where it's a lot more work for us. All of these things just didn't seem to make sense. They weren't resonating with me. It felt like gardening was a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And so when I started, I did a permaculture design certificate and then did another one and and they just kept going. Um, I really thought, and, and uh, studied herbalism, I really thought, you know, the answer is in mother nature. We've gone so far away from how things are grown in the forest or the meadow. And mother nature is doing it without us. She doesn't need humans to create a forest or, or a meadow. And we come in and we try to recreate this in our yards, but we're not doing it in the right ways. So I started writing about this idea of combining herbalism, organic gardening, and permaculture in a way that 
gardeners can understand. So sort of like what you do for homesteaders, it's like give them the, the beginning steps so that they can be introduced to it. I looked at permaculture as these huge textbooks with lots of detailed information that became a little bit overwhelming. I love them, I read through them, I studied them, and then I wanted to break it down into these easy steps. So the regenerative garden came as a process of, you know, all of my books have sort of this idea of how do we use plants to live a better life and create wellness. And the regenerative garden is now not only how it feeds us, but how it regenerates our land and makes our yards, our homesteads, our landscapes become more like the forest or the meadow. Right, exactly. And so, yeah, when we start talking about like permaculture or, you know, the idea of like food forests and just the phrase work smarter, not harder, just kind of pops, pops to mind. And, you know, why are we gardening this way, you know, to start with? And, you know, I've been homesteading for about three years now. Gardening has been a part of my life for even longer than that. And I still feel like a newbie in so many ways. And just, you know, there's always so much more to learn. Um, But yeah, then you start looking back at these concepts of just how can we more closely emulate nature and steward the land in that way. And it just makes so much more sense than what we were trying to do before, where we're trying to really just force the land into doing something as opposed to going along with what it's already going to do on its own. So kind of piggybacking on that, you kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, but so what does a regenerative garden look like for you and for people who are maybe like unfamiliar with that term or it's new to them, or even if permaculture is new to them, um, how would this differ from say, just like a regular, a regular garden? Well, so a regular garden is something that we have to put a lot of input in in order to keep it going. And so sometimes I do this exercise with people and I have them imagine that they walked away from their garden. So that they leave their garden or their, their homestead exactly the way it is and walk away from it and come back a year later uh, and what's happened to it. And most people in their mind's eye are saying that this space has now, it's, it's withered, it's died. It has, um, you know, the plants didn't make it, the seedlings that they had and the seedling trays that never made it out to the garden died, the stuff in the greenhouse burnt, you know, like this, it's because we're doing all this work. A regenerative garden is something that you can walk away from and come back 10 years later and have it thriving. We've put the systems in place so that it grows and regenerates on its own. We're talking about plants that are that work together to support each other. Um, you know, not having to stake up plants, but instead growing vining plants along taller plants, having different plants of different varieties and different species all growing together so that the ones that can and will thrive on their own without our human input do. And the ones that don't then recede into the background. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really better than sustainable. I mean, we talk a lot about sustainability and what that means to me is putting back what we're taking out. So yes, we don't want to remove more than we're using, but at the same time, if we can build our gardens and our landscapes so that not only are they sustainable, not only are they resilient to pests and diseases and climate and weather changes, but also it's a system that works on our, on its own with us as the, I guess, uh, folks who get to enjoy the space, who get to harvest from the space, who get to help manage and set up those systems. But really, I mean, my, my, yes, I'm in a a smaller urban landscape, but you'll see in the book, I've got thousands of plants and tons of projects and, and uh, lots of systems that I put in and I do almost no work. Mm -hmm. Um, 
because I, it doesn't seem like work. It just seems like the stuff that I'm doing is harvesting, enjoying the garden, you know, cutting flowers, eating the food, planning out the seeds and the vegetables that I want to grow, uh, arranging the systems, harvesting and storing water so that I can redirect it back into the garden without having to do, you know, the laborious chore of watering, you know, two times a day in the heat of summer. So, right. you know, this sort of thing where it takes us away from it and allows us to be part of it. Right. And like you mentioned, getting to enjoy the more fun parts, the the great upsides of gardening, like you said, getting to go out there and enjoy just seeing the beauty of it and the harvest and participating in it that way, as opposed to, you know, the hours that, you know, we often have spent, you know, weeding the same bed week after week or month after month and, and going, there has to be a better way than this, you know, like no one wants to do this. Um, and so, yeah, I mentioned that, you know, uh, a lot of listeners to the podcast are maybe new or aspiring homesteaders and gardeners. And I know one of the things when you get into gardening, it's very addictive right off the bat. Um, and it can be kind of overwhelming, just all the things you want to do, because you want to do everything all at once right in that first year. And I always caution people that, you know, that's the way to overwhelm and possibly burn out. Um, and so that's kind of one of the things I really love about your book. You know, you mentioned that the they needed to be kind of simpler projects that were manageable for people to tackle. And so it's sort of like this tasting menu of these kind of small to medium-sized projects. Um, so are there any particular projects that you would suggest? And, you know, I think all of these are like things that we could tackle, but maybe not all of them in the same year. So if someone's just getting started this spring with a new garden, what are a couple of your favorite projects from the book that you would suggest people look at? Uh, that's, that's such a great question. Um, I mean, there's 80 projects in the book. And what I've done for each of the projects is I've given steps along the way. So what you're talking about in terms of not biting off more than we can chew is also, um, we sometimes in permaculture, we call it the transition ethic. Mm -hmm. And that transition ethic means that sometimes we have to use, like we go a little bit slower, we have to use unsustainable methods to get to a more sustainable place. We have to, you know, uh, not rip out everything that you have in your current landscape, because it's not regenerative and then put in brand new things. It's about learning to look at what you have and see how you can plan the transition over time. Right. So it's not going to happen overnight. If you've got like a brand new landscape and you're a brand new gardener, there's a couple of really, really fun and great projects in here that are great ways to take you know, something like a lawn or a weedy patch and transform it into from scratch, starting from scratch into a garden bed that uh, feeds the plants. So one of them is a hugel culture and uh, hugel cultures are absolutely great. Sometimes it sounds like a crazy word, but really it's a very simplistic design that feeds the plants as it builds the soil along the same uh, at the same time so for a hugel culture you'll dig a trench so and, and you can do it i showed it in a small urban garden uh, but you can do this in much larger trenches you can start your whole you know vegetable farm or your flower farm using this methodology but essentially you dig a trench in the soil and then in that trench you put woody materials that take a long time to break down rotting wood, sticks and branches, then put in a layer of um, materials that are also hard to break, that take a long time to break down, uh, like, um, like pits from, you know, 
stone fruit and, and things like that. Um, and sort of that fills in a bit of the spaces and then add in some carbon materials all around that. So straw, shredded paper, cardboard, that sort of thing. And then top that with uh, manure and compost and plant on top of it. Essentially you're building a mound. And if you really want to make that soil, like, I mean, and here's the steps of it. You can dig a trench, put in some wood, throw some compost in and plant it. Step one, very easy. Step two, add some layers of manure, some biodynamic plants that are going to help to break that material down. Um, I always say make sure that there's rotting wood in there because that rotting wood holds onto moisture like a sponge. Mm -hmm. And so the wood is not just decomposing slowly, but it's also holding onto moisture, which makes you have to water the Google culture or your, um, your plants less. And then over top of, you know, if you want to add another even layer, you can add some soil fixing plants. So there's a whole list in here of plants that that replace nitrogen, that add nutrients, and you can add those wonderful wild plants. Sometimes people call them weeds, but wonderful wild plants as soil fixers, and they will continue to build that soil. So if you did all this that this year, the next year you would have the most gorgeous, beautiful soil to grow crops in. Or if you wanted to plant this year, you could you know plant right into the top layer of compost and let it do its job. So it's going to be easier to water. It's going to this mound is going to start to settle over time as the plants decompose. But again, really, really easy way to, you know, create garden beds that um, are regenerative and are going to be a lot less work and give you better plants. Right. Definitely. And I mean, it's a fun word to say, and they also just look really cool and interesting. And um, I like, you know, the function stacking aspect of permaculture. So if, you know, it's kind of the right time of year to maybe wander around, especially after storms, if you're needing to do some yard cleanup anyway, and like dragging all those branches around and why not make a Hugel culture mound with them at the same time? It's just so easy. And like you said, then adding in like, um, you know, the water retention aspects and just, it all just kind of weaves together in such a nice way. Um, you know, one of the other things I, I really liked about the book was that, um, you have this um, thread of accessibility kind of running through so many of the projects. Uh, my partner and I, um, when we were looking through the book, we've been planning to, ba uh, to build a raised uh, bed garden for his mom this year. So we started flipping through the book and he saw the project for the wicking beds. And so we got really excited to incorporate that to make that, you know, even less work for her by, you know, now she can spend her time outdoors, enjoying the plants, harvesting, not having to worry about like you said, getting out there once or twice a day in the heat of summer and having to deal with that with her health issues. So this is going to make things a lot easier for her to handle this year. So we're really excited about that. Um, you mentioned your own journey um, with disability and that you're still disabled. So can you talk more maybe about the importance of accessibility and garden planning and projects and, you know, just its importance to you? Absolutely. I mean, accessibility is one of those things that uh, I deal with every day because, you know, there's some days where I have a hard time walking or bending. I something drops on the floor and it's like, oh, well, it's there now. I'm not going to be able to pick that up. So, uh, you know, I have to wait for another day for my body to start working together with my brain so that I can, uh, you know, I can do the things that I need to do. So really, um, I, ha I have to lean on the systems. And so I, it, I've always had kind of a harsh mentality of, the plants need to uh, be able to work with me and my style and 
And uh, so if they can't make it, you know, so I'm, I'm not going to plant palm trees here in Vancouver. And a, a lot of people do because we've got sort of like a little thing. We've got a microclimate that exists down near the water where palm, tre palm trees thrive. And so people have a, a warmth for them and they plant them in their garden and then they have to wrap them in, in, in Christmas tree lights and burlap all winter long and, and then worry if it's going to die. That's the opposite of how things need to be accessible um, in my garden. And I, it's, it's sort of part and parcel. It also needs to have a really high reward. So I'm not going to plant a fruit tree from seed and watch that fruit. I mean, I will with my son because it's fine and it's an experiment and, and I've done it with a yuzu because it's, you know, a cool temperate citrus or cold climate citrus. Um, that's kind of fun. But those were sort of jobs that I took on after I started and getting more comfortable and wanted to play. In order to not lose my steam for it, I had to have high reward. So if I'm planting a fruit tree, I'm planting a five fruit espalier tree down near, um, you know, where I can easily harvest. I don't have to climb a ladder. The fruit isn't becoming overgrown. I can prune the tree regularly. I can train the espalier. I even go and hand pollinate the flowers too effectively because then I get so many apples that I have to go and thin out a third of them. Um, so I'm not gonna pollinate this year. I'm gonna let the bees do their job and see if we get uh, a little less. But that's the thing, it's, it's the efforts that I want to put in um, have to be high reward and easy for me to, like a, not a huge barrier. I don't wanna sit there on the couch and go, oh, I gotta get out there and weed. I'd rather go out there and say, oh, look at this wonderful weed that's come here to fix my soil for me. Thank you, Dandelion, for rooting down, breaking up my hard soil and bringing those minerals up to the top so that it can feed my other plants. Right, yeah, we're a big fan of weeds here. So from, you know, dandelion to chickweed and cleavers and just everything else that, you know, the non-herby folks, you know, hate to see popping up in their lawns. We we love them dearly and, and everything they do for us. Um, so, and kind of going along with that, that vein of thought as well, um, you know, you have this whole section in the book on ethics and about, you know, thinking about our gardens as part of a larger ecosystem rather than being something separate. And you talked, uh, you mentioned this earlier, like the polycultures, can you talk a little bit more about planting those and, and maybe how those can help with, uh, pest management and less work on our part than to do that? Yeah, I mean, the idea of a polyculture is not, uh, and a lot of people sort of look at a polyculture like, mm, is this a step-by-step -step process that I can do in my garden? But really it's the opposite of what we're currently doing. And anything that you start moving away from monocropping is from monoculture is polyculture. So monoculture is when we take one variety of plant and we plant it in a row by itself without any of its friends or its allies. And we expect that, you know, we're going to have a nice row of orange carrots after that. But if we've planted one long row of carrots and um, only one variety, and, you know, uh, we've got like lots of weeds and wild plants that are going to move in and say, uh, these carrots are pulling out all this nutrition. So we need to move into the spaces around it to help repair the soil. That's our job. And the pests are going to go, awesome. Look at this huge line of carrots where we can really propagate our species. And so we're going to start to uh, like, we're going to focus here instead of anybody else's garden. That's only got like a few of these, this variety right. of carrots. And just chomp down that whole row. Right. Right. Oh yeah. Because they're just like, this is like haven for us. Thank you for planting the exact right spot for us to thrive. Instead, if we were to plant, you know, 
uh, four or five different types of carrots with a whole bunch of calendula in between, throw in a bunch of, you know, really aromatic herbs, maybe some taller vining plants, you know, like something that's, you know, how got some brambles on it. The brambles are going to keep the bunnies away because the bunnies are like, hmm, these are delicious and really easy for me to access. The um, different kinds of plants that are there means that the, the um, insects, they have, there's a theory called the, um, the theory of appropriate landings. So an insect will report to the rest of their, 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 their buddies if they have landed a bunch of times and their little feet taste the plants that are great host plants for them. If they land and they're like, great host plant, ooh, parsley, oh, not <laughs> this is calendula. Oh, this is lavender. Then they'll go back and they'll say, you know, there's not a whole bunch of, you know, these delicious carrots for us here. So it's I not want worth to... it. Right. It's yeah, not, worth it. exactly. it's, you know, just a little bit of the good stuff, not enough to make the trip worthwhile. Exactly. So things that, that, that are ready for harvest at different times, things that grow at different heights, things that get planted in different seasons, you know, just keeping the cycle going, filling in the spaces, allowing the wild plants to grow, understanding how plants work together. All of that is, again, more like how if you think of how the forest and the meadow does it, they don't plant a row of one thing. It's everything growing together in harmony and sort of reseeding and regenerating itself. Right. Exactly. And it's just, I think I personally think it's just more appealing and beautiful to look at too. And then, you know, I've always had kind of like a food forest thing going on too. So then you can go from just the garden to then, you know, the understory, um, different canopy levels, the overstory, and just, you know, you can get really, I love to geek out and nerd out designing, you know, little polycultures of herbs and vegetables and different trees and everything. So it can be a lot of fun. And especially this time of year when it's still a little too cold to get outside and start working on our garden yet. Like this is a really fun thing to dream up and, and be able to scheme with. So I, I really like to get into it. Um, another section of your book, I really enjoyed the section on community really spoke to me. Um, it had so many great ideas. So from like the seed libraries to doing flower stands and because pretty much every gardener I've ever met, you know, I'll say almost every, just, you know, there's a few cantankerous ones out there, but you know, we love gardening so much. And so we're so eager to share that love with others, to share the bounty of our harvest with others, and hopefully bring new people into the fold as well and and get them hooked. Um, and I know this is an area of your life where you really, you know, you really walk your talk as well. Um, I know you're a master gardener there in Vancouver. Could you talk about your experiences with, um, doing volunteer work, helping to design children's gardens and, and what makes that such a passion for you? You know, that community chapter is also, it's a favorite of mine. It's the very last chapter out of six. And I originally called it wildlife, you know, as I had mapped out the book and I was sort of going through this idea of how does it all come together in like, how does a regenerative garden all come together? What are the pieces? And so I had wildlife in there basically about, you know, who we invite into our garden and how it helps us, um, you know, how it helps our garden, helps keeps our pests down and helps pollinate and all these things that wildlife do for us that's beneficial. And I thought, but that's not the only ones that are sharing our garden space with us. And it really dawned on me, especially as we've become this, this global world where, you know, you and I are talking from so far away from each other through technology that we've, we lost this connection with the people who are immediately in our neighborhoods, the people who are in our households even. So in terms of um, those ideas, I looked at how do we take 
this community aspect and reach out to our neighborhoods? How do we put a butterfly migration station in the front of the what we call the hell strip, that area of lawn that's between the sidewalk and the street that is a really difficult to grow area, create a butterfly migration station there. And then how do we connect it with other butterfly migration stations and other neighborhoods so that we're creating little stop points for our insects, but also bringing our community together so that we're you know, that what you said about us, we want to share with other gardeners and get them into the fold because we know it's good for us. We know it's good for our communities and we know it's good for our earth. Um, so really that goes back to the children. When I started doing the Master Gardeners program, I started volunteering with a farm to school program that brought inner city children to a farm uh, a day every two weeks or every three weeks to... Um, to learn about how to grow food. And on the first day, the kids would put up, you'd say, okay, who here, like, what's your favorite vegetable? And kids would put up their hands and say pizza. And it's like, okay, we have work to do. How does pizza grow in the garden? And they wouldn't, you know, like they wouldn't be able to break it down. They wouldn't be able to understand what the ingredients were. So we would help them grow pizza. We would help them figure out, you know, we started in the fall because that's when school starts. And so they would be snacking on kale and eating flowers out of the garden and trying these things and cooking with them. And then we, and then over winter plan the garden and in spring start the seeds. And as we watch those seeds grow and the children, you know, get so excited about watching their little seeds turn into the things that they were learning to cook with um, you can see that when we teach the littlest people how food is grown how plants are wonderful how to fall in love with those worms and insects and spiders and all those things that help us in the garden is that when they grow up they're going to protect it they truly fall in love over the time that we work with them. And so the more we give them a chance to interact with plants, the more we know that they're, it's going to be a passion of theirs and feed, you know, keep them, you know, hopefully they'll be passionate about it enough that they'll put down the screens and they'll head out and, uh, and watch the bees that's, right. you know, and want to protect them. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, and, you know, if we can get them hooked from a, from a young age, I was a middle school teacher for six years and we did a project, a, a school garden project and, it was just such an amazing impact on those students. And I would like to think that that has stayed with them and that even if their, you know, jobs down the road don't necessarily have anything to do with gardening, maybe it'll still be incorporated in there. You know, architects that think, you know, oh, I need to make room for green space when I, when I do some planning and, and things like that. Um, and we just, you know, we have no way to know what the ripple effects are um, of, you know, the kids that pass through the gardens you design, but I'd like to think that they'll be really long lasting um, I want to be mindful of your time, but one last question, since uh, spring is right around the corner and we're all eagerly planning our new gardens, what are you most looking forward to growing this year? Or is there anything new you'll be growing that you're really excited about? Every year I go through the um, specialty herb catalogs and I pick out a bunch of different varieties of my favorite herbs. So it's, uh, I grow a lot of um, things like stevia and I'm trying to find the, the variety of stevia that's just got that beautiful, delicate green tea sweetness and not a lot of bitter aftertaste. So that's one of them that I really love to work with. I grow lots of stevia every year. I grind it into powder. I use it then through throughout the year. So it's a really, really productive and, and helpful plant. But also I really love that, you know, all these herbs that we use, um, 
they, 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 they do so much more benefit to us. So like stevia, a lot of people see it as a sugar substitute. So they replace it with sugar so, that, so they can reduce their sugar intake. But it also is really good at uh, being a biofilm disruptor. So if we've got some stuff in our tummy, maybe some bacteria that's hiding underneath the gut, in the gut, hiding underneath the biofilm, then it helps to sort of scrub that away and allow that bacteria to come out so that our good bacteria can work on it. So there's all these like wonderful properties of this like one amazing plant. So I try to do a bunch of different calendulas every year that are different. And so I have my favorites and then a couple of extra ones. I then do a bunch of different chamomiles, which ones, you know, the tall ones, the short ones, which one has that sweet, sweet apple aroma and gives me enough flowers that I can, you know, make all the soaps and lotions that I make throughout the year with it. So I guess that's sort of when everybody's going through the seed catalogs and, you know, picking out their different tomato varieties, I'm herbscaping. So, so this year I'm really excited about um, a couple of different kinds of calendula, chamomile, and stevia, and uh, but I also I also think I'm going to try to propagate some different kinds of lavender um, because I've been using lavender for a gazillion years, but I want one that infuses an in oil and really gives that that delicate delicate rather than the little bit of um, camphor or eucalyptal. Um, that little bit of a stringent or stronger aroma. I want the, the really sweet floral. So yeah, yeah I mean, everything. Beautiful. <laughs> right. I know it's so, so hard to pick just All the herbs. things, right. But you know, that's one of the things I love about gardening is that the longer you do it, there's actually just deeper and deeper rabbit holes to go down and, and to really just fine tune, you know, like you said, I mean, I don't, I've never had a year where I didn't grow calendula, but every year I kind of want to branch out a little more and go, well, is this the right one for, you know, the right calendula for me, it might be a different than the right calendula for you. And our, you know, we're very far away. So our growing zones and climates and, and everything else. And it's just, it's so fun to, to dive into that and kind of figure out like what your particular lavender is going to be or your stevia. So thank you for sharing that. Um, thank you so much, Stephanie, for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge and love of plants with us. And everyone else, please check out her new book, um, the regenerative garden. It's really beautiful and lovely. And I think whether you've been gardening your first year or your first decade or anywhere past that or in between lots of fun projects for you to try out this year. So thanks so much for being with us. All right. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. Thank you again so much, Stephanie, for coming on the show. It was great getting to speak with you. That book, The Regenerative Garden, is available now for pre-order. It comes out officially on March 15th, I believe. Stephanie also said that if you pre-order the book, anywhere that you pre-order it, you can go to her website, gardentherapy.ca, and input your order number, and she'll send you a free digital seed starting guide. So definitely check that out if you've done the pre-order. Okay, as always, you can support the show by checking out our online farm shop. That's foxandelder.com shop, or just go to foxandelder.com and find us that way. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and also now TikTok, trying to make some cute videos there. If you want to see our new Cooney Cooney pigs, definitely check out the TikTok and the Instagram. Also um, in the farm shop, I forgot to mention our lymph love, our lymphatic herbal vinegar is back in stock. So that has those first spring herbs that are popping up now that winter is coming to a close. So chickweed, cleavers, dandelion leaf, 
It's a really nice herbal vinegar to kind of help your body wake up and get moving again now that winter is coming to a close and just let your body know it's time to get back to work and uh, get over the rest from winter. Not that most of us probably rested a lot, but our bodies wanted to. So I hope you were able to do that. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, keep your hands dirty and your heart open.